Well, good morning, church family. Before we jump into the message today, I, I want to celebrate something that happened just yesterday. Over the past month, uh, last few weeks, we've been collecting and donating toys to be used for the affordable Christmas for the Glenwood Leadership Academy. First of all, there were over 800 toys purchased and donated to be sold yesterday at GLA. So first of all, thank you for responding in such a, uh, a powerful way. Yes, yeah, we can applaud for that for sure. <laughs> Yesterday, over 100 families went through the affordable Christmas shop. That represented about 196 students. And uh, they were able to purchase gifts, moms and dads, for their children. And we had over 60 volunteers from here at Crossroads that helped uh, families work through the affordable Christmas shop and also uh, gift wrap those packages. What a beautiful day. And I just want to say thank you to all of you who helped purchase a gift or also who were there to help out yesterday. We wanted to also let you know that all the proceeds that were uh, collected yesterday, received, actually stays with the Glenwood Leadership Academy for them to use for programming all throughout the year. It's really amazing what's happening in that part of our city, in the south side of our city. Um, 13 years, Crossroads has been involved with the affordable uh, Christmas shop, and they've never seen triple-digit families until yesterday, so that's pretty amazing. Also because Glenwood Leadership Academy is working alongside two of our other partners, Potter's Wheel and Community One, there's other things that are happening in that community. The, there's an after-school program that's really providing awesome support for students at GLA. And also there's affordable housing that's starting to spring up in that community. And all that's a, a picture of what it looks like when all of us are generous, all of us are working together to just be a part of what God's doing in our city. So thank you for being part of that. Also, I wanted to just give you a brief update on our year-end offering for this year. On Vision Sunday, we shared with you that between then and the end of the year, we have a giving goal of $1 million, and that million dollars would help us finish 2022 by meeting our expenses, but also launch us into 2023 on a strong note. And uh, just to give you an update, so far as of last week, we've received $96,207. And so we have just a little over $900,000 to go between now and the end of the year. Here's what we know. God is faithful. He has provided for this congregation for the past 55 years, and we trust that he will continue to provide exactly what we need, and we ask him to help us be good stewards of all that he provides for us. And we also are just asking you to prayerfully consider how you might participate in this year's year in offering. Have you ever got a Christmas gift that you really didn't want? I remember, remember the first experience I had with this. I was probably about eight years old. Uh, the doorbell rang at our house a couple weeks before Christmas. And as our family rushed to the door, there was a dear family from the church where my dad was pastoring. And they came inside and they said, we have a little gift for you, uh, our pastor and family. And I blurted out, as only an eight-year can, I hope it's not country ham. We hate country ham. You can see where this is going, right? I mean, my parents graciously opened the package and there was a beautiful country ham. We, uh, it's, uh, you know, exchanged feet that night as I was eating a slice of it, you know, at the dinner table. I also, I told you last week that my wife and I got married at Christmas uh, a week before. And so that meant, or that means this Saturday on the 17th, we'll celebrate 28 years of married life. And thank you. That's exciting. It's a testimony to God's grace and her patience, right? And so because we got married a week before Christmas, we went on a honeymoon 
And then when we came back from our honeymoon, the day before Christmas Eve, we had all these presents around our Christmas tree. They were our wedding gifts. And so we worked through them and opened them. It was all awesome. And we came across this one present that was these beautiful gold wall decoration. And I'll be honest, it didn't really match the decor thing we were going for, right? Or at least that's what my wife said. And so because we were meeting with my side of the family for Christmas the next day, we decided we would wrap that back up and we put a sticker on it said to Rebecca and Todd which is my sister and her husband and so we waited with anticipation for them to crack open that present the next day and then watch them struggle with all the pleasantries they could come up with to describe that beautiful gold wall decoration right oh it was a hoot and we finally let them off the hook and we gave them a different gift fast forward the next year my, uh, we were all gathered as a family and there was a package that said to Mark and Karen, which is my brother and his wife. And when they opened up the package, guess what was in there? Those beautiful wall decorations that were gold, right? And I think that thing made a lap around our family two or three times before somebody just threw it in the trash, right? Just a couple years ago, a friend of mine said a helpful phrase that I wish I would have had in both of those situations. He said this, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Now, you know I'm from Kentucky. I should maybe be familiar with this phrase, but I really wasn't. And so he explained to me what it meant. A horse, the age of a horse, is told by its teeth. And so it's not mannerly to be staring out the mouth of a horse when someone is giving it to you as a gift, right? Even if you didn't want the thing to begin with, right? This Christmas season, we've been revisiting the arrival of Jesus to our planet. And I hope as we have, that you've been able to see that God is still at work. God is still speaking to us in many ways, through dreams, through visions, through his word, through circumstances, through creation, through others. He might even send an angel your way if necessary, or cause a donkey to speak like we looked at last week, right? God is also still directing us. He wants to reveal himself as well as his will and plan for our lives. He wants to reveal those things to us. And we must recognize how he's getting our attention. We must surrender to his plans and we must praise him for all that he has done, all that he is doing, and all that he will do in and through us. We've looked at some of the people, some of the circumstances, even some of the objects of that first Christmas. We've looked at an angel. And we've also looked at a star. And today we're going to look at a stable. Now, from the start, I want to just recognize that you will not find a stable recorded in Scripture, like a barn-like structure that you might see on Christmas cards or you might find in a movie or you might find out in the atrium here at Crossroads that you can take your picture next to even this morning. Let's read Luke's account of the birth of Jesus and maybe see why a barn would be such a fixture in most of the Christmas scenes. This is Luke's account of Jesus' birth and beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, follow along in the Bible that you have or you can also follow along on the screens. Luke writes this, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for a baby to be born, 
And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. All throughout Luke's accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, he makes many references to historical figures. Most of these are Roman political leaders. He's doing that to provide some chronological reference points for us to hold on to, for us to follow. But Luke also says he's doing that so that we would have a detailed and reliable account of the life and ministry of Jesus. You don't read anywhere in any of four of the Gospels these words, once upon a time. It's because these are real life events that are historically taking place. And in Luke chapter 2, we see one of these people that Luke refers to. His name is Caesar Augustus. He was a well-known ruler. In fact, he was the greatest leader that Rome had ever produced. His birth name was Octavian. He was the son of the sister of Julius Caesar, who eventually adopted him as his own child, and he became an heir to the throne around 45 BC when Julius Caesar was murdered. If you're a Shakespeare fan, you may have read about some of these people and some of these events. Octavian was, he shared the rule of Rome with two other people, Mark Antony and Lepidus. And the period of Rome in this moment was marked by bloody, brutal fighting as these three men kind of jockeyed for position to gain a larger share of the throne. In 31 BC, after Mark, Antony, and Octavian had kind of pushed Lepidus out of the picture, um, royal battle erupted between Mark Antony and Octavian. Now, Mark Antony was supported by Cleopatra of Egypt, and she provided all kinds of warships and soldiers that outnumbered Octavian, but he was a better strategist. In fact, because of that, he actually gained control. He eventually defeated his remaining rival and became the sole ruler of the entire Roman world around 27 BC. He gave himself the name Caesar Augustus, and that actually means exalted one. He was known by others as a son of a god. He was also called by many the savior of the world. He established the famous Pax Romana, which means peace of Rome. He brought a golden age of Roman literature and architecture. Luke references the birth of Jesus in this period of Rome, documenting these historical events. He mentions Caesar Augustus issuing a decree that would cause all of the world to be uh, taken a census. It was really important to take a head count now that he was in charge as the sole ruler. But even more important, it was important for taxation because he needed to recover some revenue to actually pay back all the debts he had from winning the war and also to establish his new rule. Luke mentions Caesar Augustus along with another political ruler whose name was Quirinius. He's well documented in history, but there is one point of debate. There's only one known census that Quirinius was involved with, and that actually happened in 7 AD, much later than Jesus was born. It was actually recorded in Acts chapter 5, commenting on that. So it leads us to ask, was there more than one census that Quirinius was part of? And that's possible. But also there's a footnote in Luke chapter 2 as it refers to Quirinius that indicates there's a possible alternative translation that it meant before Quirinius was governor in Syria that Caesar Augustus issued this census. 
Because Rome was in charge of the entire world, at least the entire known world at the time, they had the power to issue such a decree. And because the Jewish people were under the rule of Caesar Augustus, Joseph, who was an Israelite, was bound to obey the order, and so he returned to his hometown to be counted and to pay taxes. I'm sure he was excited about both, right? He had to travel about 80 to 90 miles from where he was living, Nazareth, to his hometown, Bethlehem. He was from the lineage of David, who also was born in Bethlehem. Both of these historical realities are fulfillment of prophecy about Jesus who would be born there, about the baby that was in his fiance's belly. If you think that Joseph was really worked up about this trip to Bethlehem, how do you think Mary felt, who was traveling most likely about nine months pregnant? You know, we're not sure how long Mary and Joseph actually were in Bethlehem. Some scholars think more than a few days, probably a few weeks, maybe even up to a month. All three of my children were born pretty uneventful. I mean, Christy felt some contractions. We started monitoring them. We made an intelligent decision to travel to the hospital because they were getting to a, a point where we needed to be there. Within a few hours of arriving at the hospital, all three of our children were born. We're really blessed. We, we take that not for granted to, to just see how, you know, it's pretty common our uh, deliveries were uh, for the most part. We don't have any indication that Mary, there was any significant trauma or, or anything that surrounded the delivery of Jesus. In fact, it probably wasn't a rush job or under duress. Many have kind of created this scene where Joseph threw her up on the donkey and headed to Bethlehem kind of in a fast pace. Or they kind of point their finger at what a bonehead Joseph was who didn't make any, you know, plans ahead of time to have accommodations, especially for his pregnant fiancé. There's even this drama that plays out that like Mary and Joseph got kicked to the curb by their family and had to sleep with the animals. Well, archaeological studies have actually helped us have a, a, a more concrete picture of probably what was more realistic. In those days, uh, the first century, uh, people lived in homes that were surrounded by a gate or a courtyard. And in those homes, the living quarters were up on the second floor. That's where the people resided. But on the first floor, it was very common that during the night, animals would be corralled and they would be housed inside of the home on the first floor. I actually have a chart of what this looks like. You can see kind of what this home may have looked like, that the, where the family lived, downstairs being this stable where there were mangers and animals could be kept, and then a guest room available. In the ancient Middle East, this is kind of what homes look like. In fact, check out, this is even cooler. This is actually a picture of one of those homes from the first century, uh, recovered in an archeological dig. And you can see some stalls there. This is actually part of a house, not a separate barn or an outside structure. Because of the Roman order for everyone to return to their hometown, Bethlehem was a bustling place. It was crowded, maybe better said, it was overcrowded. The sure matter of the fact that there was no vacancy at the inn. I don't want you to picture some commercialized Motel 6, we'll keep the light on for you kind of thing. But actually it was probably more just a guest room that was already full to capacity. And so Mary and Joseph found a place that was where the animals were normally kept. And there is where Jesus was born and he was laid in a manger. Now that doesn't seem like a great place for the Messiah, the savior of the world to make his entrance, does it, right? 
Wouldn't it have seemed that God could have provided a better place for his one and only son to enter the world? It seems as God was very involved, even controlling of all the details of Jesus' birth to make sure they fulfilled the prophecies that were spoken hundreds of years before, like what town he would be born in, to whom he would be born. It seems like God was very intentional in the place that he would provide. God wanted to show us that Christ Jesus came into the world to bring salvation to all people, not just the rich and powerful, but also the poor, the downtrodden, even the forgotten. God's love extends to the whole human race. The depth and breadth of God's love was demonstrated most by Jesus willingly leaving heaven's glory to come down to earth's poverty. Paul tells the Corinthians that. He says, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. From the very beginning, Jesus' arrival to our planet was a great reversal. It was a juxtaposition between the things of earth and the things of heaven. And there's certainly irony between this Roman ruler who thought himself as a god, creating this census that ushered in the one who was the true son of God, Messiah, and eternal king. In all apparent weakness, insignificance, and vulnerability, God confronts the things of this world as he fulfills his promises and he provides the only thing that the world truly needs, a savior. I love that Mary noticed that. She praised God even before Jesus was born about how God was providing. Look at her her words in Luke chapter one. Mary said this, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he's been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Do you see how Mary heard the voice of God? Do you see how she saw his direction for her life? Do you see how she trusted him providing for her? She knew the prophecies, and she was watching them be fulfilled right in front of her eyes. And she worshiped God for his faithfulness, to the promises that he had given, and she trusted him to provide for her as his wills and plans were unfolding. I think that's a reason to call her blessed. I think it's even a better reason to learn from her how God will provide for us. You know, while on the outside, it might look like Mary and Joseph got the short end of the stick. I mean, they had to sleep where the animals were usually kept. But God was providing an intentional place on purpose. For Jesus to make his interest into the world, Luke had pointed out that where he was laid in a manger would be an indicator to the shepherds that this is the Messiah they had found who had been sent. Mary and Joseph trusted God's plan as well as his provisions for them. Which leads me to ask all of us today, are we trusting God for his provisions for our life? 
Can you recognize that God has a plan for your life like he did Mary, Joseph, even Jesus? And that he is committed and he is working to provide for that plan as it plays out. As we learned last week, God's plans and his way for our life might not always be our ways. But his way and plan can be trusted because it's for our good. It's to bring us hope. It's to bring us a future. And God has promised to provide everything that we need. This is what Jesus says about that in Matthew 6. He says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Maybe some of you needed to hear that this morning before you got dressed for church, right? But he goes on. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that Solomon in all his splendor was, dressed, was not dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow's thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's some incredible promises from God that he will provide what you need. And I know that a significant number of people who are seated right here in this very moment need that reassurance. On Vision Sunday, just a few weeks ago, we asked our congregation to complete what we call a church health assessment. And over 700 people actually completed that assessment. So once again, let me say thank you for participating. We have learned all kinds of things about our congregation from that assessment, and we're using those to make the strategic decisions uh, as, as we work through that data. If you want a summary of that data information, I'll tell you where you can find that at the end of my message. But here's a couple things we, I wanted to point out today. First of all, this. 26% of people who filled out the survey say that they worry about safety, about food, and about housing on a regular basis, some daily, some weekly some often. 28% say that they worry about being able to meet normal monthly expenses. You know, if Mary was part of our congregation and took this survey, she'd be in those two statistics. Most scholars believe that Mary was not just young, uh, but she was also uh, very, from a very limited resources. Here's the good news. God has promised to meet our needs, to provide. And like Mary, we might not always see how God will, how it will happen, but we can always trust God to provide like she did. He might not always provide like we thought or in the ways that we thought he would, but we can also always trust God's heart. We can trust our Heavenly Father to do what is right and what is good for us. Jesus said that a little bit later in Matthew 7 when he said this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, uh, will, the door will be open. Then he asked this question. It's a comparison. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. The obvious answer there is nobody would do that, right? And so he says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God is still providing for us. According to his will and his plan for us, for our good and for the good of his kingdom. We need to remember that God keeps in his mind eternity, not necessarily the things of this world. What looked like less than desirable accommodations for a mom's birthing room for Jesus to be born was actually an indicator that the Messiah had come to save the world. God has proven his faithfulness to his promise to provide, even when it cost him dearly. Paul told the Romans this, what shall we conclude to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? When I was in college, I worked as a youth pastor in a small rural town in uh, Kentucky. And one of the common things was to go to someone's house after church to have lunch. It was a great way to get to know the congregation. And right before Christmas one year, we went to some dear friend's house and Dustin, their youngest son, was about 10 years old. He's like, Mr. Phil, Mr. Phil, do you want to see my Christmas list? I'm like, sure. And he came out with an eight-page, single-spaced Christmas list for that year. I could see the dread on his parents' face, right? Now, most of the things on that list, I'd probably say all those things on the list, none of them were anything that he needed. They were all just things that he wanted. But I'm pretty sure in this room today, we all have a list that has nothing probably to do with the wants. It has a lot to do with the things that we are counting on God for to provide our needs, even yet at this Christmas season. I know there are people here today that are worried about how their most basic needs in life, normal living expenses, are gonna be covered. You're counting on God to provide your most basic needs. I wanna assure you that God provided manna in the wilderness. He brought water from a rock. He provided grain in Egypt. He provided a ram in the thicket. He also provided food for 5,000 men, their wives and their children. And he's still in the business of providing our needs. He can and he wants to. I trust God to provide. I hope you will too. When you give financially here at Crossroads, your money goes to help actually God provide for the needs of people who are counting on him to provide. In fact, every year in our annual budget, we allocate a percentage that goes to what we call our agape fund. And the agape fund is designated to help people who are members of our congregation who find themselves in tough financial times to seek help from our congregation and us be able to provide help in that way. Just a few weeks ago, I stood out in the atrium and a woman came up, I know her, and she said, Phil, I just wanna say thank you to Crossroads again. Had they not helped me financially in the moment, just a few weeks ago when I was going through this awful um, health crisis, I would not be able to be living where I am today. You're part of that when you give financially to God and to this church. But I also want to be very clear this morning that if you are a member of Crossroads and you're going through a tough time, that's what family does. I'm really excited that our agape fund is no longer just ask for money and get a check. That's, that's not how we operate. In fact, the agape ministry 
consists of a team of people who are representative of many different professional services. There are people who are physicians, people who are social workers, people who have knowledge to not just give a hand out, but actually a hand up. They wanna come alongside those from our congregation who are facing tough times. Provide financially, but also provide much larger support. I'm grateful to be part of a church like that. And that's not just limited to the people within our walls. We're very generous in this community and people know Crossroads as a place that they can help, that can, they can get help. And that's because God is doing all of that. God wants to provide for other physical needs. Some of you I know are struggling physically today that you're dealing with a diagnosis or a health concern. You need healing and strength. God provided sight for the blind. He made the lame walk. He cured leprosy and he raised the dead. And I believe that he still can. God doesn't always choose to do that, but I don't doubt his power. I don't doubt his wisdom and I don't question his sovereignty. Just of two weeks ago, I was sitting in my office meeting with a lady named Ann. And she was sharing with me that it was just two years ago that she got one of the worst diagnoses she could imagine, cancer. And she immediately asked if the elders of Crossroads would pray over her and anoint her with oil. That's because she believes what the Bible says. James 5 says these words. If anyone's sick, let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Just a little bit later, James says this, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And came to the elders, they prayed over her, they anointed her with oil, and she was reporting that a year later she was cancer-free, no, uh, there was no reoccurrence, she was in full remission. But I don't think that was the greatest miracle God performed that night, because adjoining and, or joining in that night was her husband. And he came there very reluctant and highly skeptical. And Prior to that, he didn't darken the doorstep of Crossroads or any church. But he came to be supported to his wife that night. And what he saw take place in that room, just godly men praying for somebody in need, and then watching this congregation, close friends surround her with love and support, her husband hasn't missed a Sunday since. I think that's the greatest miracle that God performed that night. If all eight elders of Crossroads were on stage with me today, you could ask every one of them. None of them feels like they probably have the gift of healing, but they believe what the Bible says. They trust God's power. They trust God's wisdom. They trust God's sovereignty. And that's what church should look like, us caring for each other, us following what Scripture says. And a lot of times that's how God is providing. I know there are many of you here today that might be struggling with something other than physical needs. You're struggling with disappointment or discouragement or frustration, hurt, anger. Maybe you've lost a loved one this year. Maybe you're going through a divorce. There's some type of dysfunction in your family. Maybe people have mistreated you, even abandoned you. You're carrying a heavy burden and it's weighing you down. You're heavy hearted because of what you're feeling emotionally. Listen to Jesus' words. He says this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Peter, who was there that day, probably heard Jesus say that firsthand, later wrote to the church these words, humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You know, this year, like never before, I've needed to trust God to provide 
for my emotional needs. After the loss of my dad back in February, and just watching my mom make this rapid decline due to uh, being di diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. I visited her yesterday. It was one of the first times in several visits that she actually even recognized that I belonged to her, that she knew me. She's always been kind, but yesterday she recognized that I was more than just a visitor and she couldn't come up with my name, but she recognized that we knew each other. You know, that's hard to kind of just deal with. Doesn't really get you into the Christmas spirit, I'll be honest. But God has been faithful to me. I've watched him provide for those moments where I've not understood or liked it. He's always been gracious and gentle and reaffirming. I trust God to meet my emotional needs and I hope that you will too. You know, sometimes things are just bigger than any one of us can handle on ourselves. I think that's why God invites us into doing life together in community. And I also believe that there are people who are called as well as trained to help us walk through the things that happen in life. A group of those people were right here at Crossroads in our counseling center. Those are people that I trust personally. One of those people I entrust a lot of my life to, to walk alongside with me as a friend, as a brother. He also is a very knowledgeable and trained individual. I'd highly recommend that if things have gotten heavy on your shoulder, trust God to provide and also look around at those people who can walk alongside you, who can help you make sense of some of the things that happen in life. Finally, I know there are people here today who are feeling guilty. You're feeling hopeless, even without purpose, without the grace, the love, and the peace that God has provided through that baby that was born in Bethlehem as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord. Jesus, defining his appearance to this world, said these words, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He goes on to say this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe in him it stands condemned because they've already not believed in the name of God's one and only son. That might be the clearest reason for Christmas ever stated. Jesus is a gift that God has provided for you. Don't ignore what God is saying. Don't miss the signs of what God is trying to show you. And certainly don't reject the gift that God is providing for you for salvation. You may have received lots of gifts that you hadn't asked for, but Jesus is a gift that you will not want to you will not want to not open. I have found forgiveness and grace and peace and purpose in life in knowing Jesus as my savior. And I hope that you will too. I love being a church, being part of a church that's resourceful. You know, I, two of the people who filled out the assessment just a few weeks ago indicated that they don't currently follow Jesus, but they'd like to know how. I had the privilege of talking to both of them on the phone. I've invited them into conversation about what it looks like to follow Jesus. The roadmap has a section that's called, Who is Jesus? To help answer that question for anybody who might be here today still wondering, who is this baby that was born? I also love that we come alongside parents to help them facilitate conversations with their children about what it looks like to come to salvation and be baptized, maybe just like the Bingman family even here this morning. Here's what I want you to know today is that God is still providing for us. He might provide differently than we expect. I think he's often drawing us closer in our relationship with him as well as in our dependence. 
And let me just be clear. He's already given us in Jesus more than anything we ever deserve. His ultimate concern is for our eternity. But God is Jehovah Jireh. He's our provider and he is enough. He's forever enough. He's always enough. He's more than enough. So trust him to meet all of your needs. Let's pray together. God, I'm thankful that the arrival of Jesus was not something that Hallmark created. God, I'm grateful that real life, real historical moments happened that marked the arrival of this one you had promised for so long that would change the world. God, we are part of that world that you came to change. You came to deal with the most significant need that we had, the need of a savior. And you followed through all the way to the cross. Because you offered Jesus to us to meet our greatest need, we are confident that you are not just capable but willing to meet every need that we have. And you're also wise enough to discern what we ask for that we want and what we actually need. And so we trust you to do what's best for us. We trust you to provide physically, emotionally, and certainly spiritually. God, I pray that as you do, we'd continue to worship you more and more. We'd be able to give testimony to how you are at work, how you have worked, and and what we trust you to do in the future. God, you would draw the world to you, to know your heart and to know who you are. God, do that through us, we pray, through Christ. Amen.